Welcome back to Dirt Talk. I'm your host, Aaron Witt. And today, I say I'm excited to talk to everybody. That's because I am. But I'm, I'm extremely excited to talk to Tom Squarey of Granite Rock. He's the president and CEO. Granite Rock's been around since the 1800s. They're one of the oldest construction companies in California. I mean, one of the first few licenses ever given out by the state of California. And really one of the oldest companies in the United States. There's just not many companies that have been around since the 1800s. It's it's pretty amazing what they've done and and how diversified they are and, and how important they are to the, the community that they serve in, in California, Monterey Bay region. So Tom, I, I really appreciate you giving us some time uh, amid these crazy times here. Yeah, my pleasure. And good to talk with you. So getting in, how did you start your career? Because I know you, you did not begin a construction guy. So, so how did you start off in your professional career? I was always around construction as a kid. My family was in the hardware business, and I worked as a construction laborer in lumber yards and really had an affinity for, for that work. And our, you know, our friends were in the business, and so I really liked that. I went to law school to become a, a litigation lawyer, and while at law school, uh, one of the classes I took was on construction law, and that just really lit me up that there was such a thing and that I could apply my legal skills towards something as interesting as the construction business. So I went that direction, graduated from law school, and went to a law firm that had a big emphasis on construction law and represented contractors and, and owners and developers and subcontractors and suppliers, et cetera, doing those kinds of things. Then in 1998, I had an opportunity to come to Granite Rock and be its general counsel. I did that and thought it was the best uh, job in the world. And then in, in 2012, our then chairman of the board, president and CEO, Bruce Wolpert, passed away in a boating accident. And uh, I was asked to take on the CEO role. That's how I got here. What was that like having to take over as CEO so abruptly in such a tragic, tragic time? It scared me to death, honestly. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was very, it was very difficult. You really kind of have to know a little bit about Bruce Wolpert. He was, uh, he, he's the smartest person I ever met. Very, very capable, committed to changing the construction business for the better, innovative, just a dynamic leader with a lot of foresight and kind of ran the business by his sheer force of personality. And if anybody bet, they would have bet that he would have lived to be 100 years old and died at his death because <laughs> that's just, you know, the business was that uh, that way to him. And so it was quite a shock when he passed away. We didn't really have a good succession plan. His, his succession plan was that if something happened to him, our board of directors and our management team would figure it out. And uh, mm. we we're fortunate to have, have a, a really strong board of directors led by gentleman named Mark Kaminsky, who's currently chairman of Reliant Steel and Aluminum. We all got together, the management team and the board with Mark's leadership, and figured out what to do. It was very challenging, challenging times. How did they get to you as CEO? Why did they choose you? <laughs> I asked myself that quite a bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, I'm not sure I, I have the right answer. I, I have a couple of theories. We have very, very, very capable business leaders. Our, you know, we, we're kind of broken into three main lines of business. Our aggregate business with the Wilson Quarry that I know you've been to several times. Yep. Our materials business, concrete asphalt building materials, recycled materials. And then, of course, our, our heavy civil construction business. And 
we were fortunate in that each of those businesses had very, very strong operators um, who knew how to run that business. So the CEO role, I think, Mark and the board envisioned, didn't need to have those skills because we had people who could do that very well. They, they were really looking for somebody who could kind of be a cultural leader. Culture is so important here. And I think they looked at me and said, well, you really can't run any of this other stuff. <laughs> So we'll make you the cultural leader and let the business people run the business, which is what they do best. And, <laughs> uh, and you, can, you can do this other stuff. So having a, a board of directors, a lot of times that's for larger companies. Can you define what a board of directors is and what's their function? Sure. I think we're, you know, we're a family-held business, been around since 1900. And as I look back on the history of the company, we've always had a, a board of directors. They functioned largely as an advisory board, because when you're family held, you know, the family really holds the stock and can make the decision. So, so the board exists to, to provide guidance and counsel and expertise on, on topics. And, and we've been really blessed in modern history to have a largely independent board with folks who are, you know, close to the company and friends of the company, but don't work for the company. They, they work, you know, they have outside expertise mm. and, when I first came to Granite Rock, one of the very first things that happened is I got invited to a board meeting, and I was just shocked at how, what a rigorous process it was. You know, I, I expected in a family-held company the board meeting to be at somebody's house, and they drink coffee and make an entry in the minute books that a meeting was held, and everybody would go on. But yep. it wasn't that way at all. It huh. was it was a slate of outside directors actively debating courses of action at the time we were discussing whether to buy some pretty significant capital equipment at the quarry. And I was surprised, pleasantly surprised that, that the company took that role of a board of directors so seriously. When Bruce died in 2012, the board really changed, I think, from an advisory board to more of a true fiduciary board where they are really running, you know, the company from a, from a board of directors uh, level. Mm. And I'll, I'll tell you for us, because, you know, in the middle of that tragedy, it was so great to have somebody who was focused on the big picture strategic issues of the business and to be a bridge between management, because we had independent management at the time, and, and the family, and who was affected by grief from the loss, but not consumed by it, so mm-hmm. that they could still make clear-eyed decisions about the future of the company and where, where we should go. Yeah. And they served that role and continue to serve it today. You know, we meet quarterly. They approve our profit plan. They approve our capital expenditure budget. They participate in strategic decisions and help us set the strategy for the company. It's been a tremendous, tremendous asset for us. And I, I, I tell folks, had we not had that robust, independent, professional board of directors, I'm not sure how well we would have weathered the, the tragedy caused by, by Bruce's passing. Now, do you think, and how many people are at Granite Rock, roughly? Just under a thousand. Just under a thousand. So, d- would do you think a some kind of board of directors would function well at smaller companies, or is that really just a large company type concept? Well, we've had it as far as I can tell for 120 years. So, really? you know, we were a lot smaller then, and and yeah. and it's worked. And I, I look at a lot of our customers, and many, many, many of our customers are family held businesses, and many of them are smaller than we are. And and I tell them, look, a board is great. You don't. You know, you, as the family owners, you don't have to do what they say, but bring bring them on as an advisory board and get their their advice and expertise. So if you, you know, if you're a company that's got a 
deal with a lot of credit issues, get a retired banker on your board. You know, if you have bonding insurance issues, get a retired bond person on your board. Mm. If you, you, you know, you have a lot of legal issues. There's, there's a bunch of lawyers who are retired who would love the opportunity to help guide a company through that. So I, I think there's a lot of expertise, even that a small company could take advantage of. But I do get the feeling talking to customers and others that there's this hesitance that you're ceding power, you know, over, I'm going to cede power over my company if I have a board of directors. And, yeah. you know, the board, the board always serves at your pleasure if you're the owner. So I don't think that that's true. I just think they serve a valuable role in, in kind of giving you this independent, professional view of the world that is a closely held business you may not have. Gotcha. Now, going going back to what you used to do and in, in as general counsel, what is construction law? Because I feel like, you know, at the ownership level, you know, contracts is a huge talking point, but most everyone in the field never, ever sees a construction contract and doesn't really understand how important it is and how under, important law is in the construction process. So what what is construction law and what did you do as an attorney in the construction industry? Well, it's, it's a whole bunch of different disciplines of law all around the construction business. So, mm-hmm. so to me, it's, it's, you know, commercial law and contract law and tort law and real property law and, and, you know, all the, all the law school class topics, but as they apply to the work that we do as contractors. So I believe that, you know, you could look at all the construction law applicable in your state and it could be in one book. It's not that much, but understanding how the business works, so how that law applies to the business, to me, is really the art of construction law. And our, the, the Rodney Jenny, who runs our construction division, is fond of saying, you know, they call us contractors, not builders. And they call us contractors because our job is to execute contracts. So don't forget mm. how important those documents are. And I, I think you know, the folks out in the field can do that, right? They just, you know, I, I'm governed by the plans, but but I'm not worried about the the other 400 pages of the specification that tells me what to do. Yeah. And that stuff's, you know, it's vitally important because when there's a dispute, that's the first place everybody goes. So that's what a construction lawyer's job is, is to, is to understand all that, understand how it applies to our business and to, you know, educate, keep folks out of trouble. And then when a dispute arises to help solve the dispute. What drew you from, you know, law firm to Granite Rock? What drew you to Granite Rock? Well, I, I knew uh, I knew Granite Rock for a long, long time because I grew up in this community. So they were mm. they were locally um, very well known to be, to be a good company. And I was at a point in my um, construction career as a as a partner in a law firm, but I found that to be a partner in a law firm, you have to be really good at going out and finding new clients and and um, generating revenue. That's how you succeed as a partner in a law firm, by and large. And that wasn't what I was great at at all. I was, was pretty good lawyer, as you know, pretty good mechanic, and knew how to do my job. But going out and grabbing big clients and hooking them into the law firm just wasn't my strong suit. So mm-hmm. two things drew me here. One was the reputation of the company because I knew it was a great place to work. And the second was that it gave me an opportunity to, to do what I liked, which is to practice law and to help people solve problems. But without that pressure to, to go out and, and schmooze clients and, and generate business, which it just I was never great at that. And now as general counsel, that means you were the lawyer just for Granite Rock. So you just worked on Granite Rock legal issues, correct? 
Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Now, how did you go from you know general counsel to starting to to emerge into a leadership role? It was trial by fire because of mm. our circumstance, and I'm not sure I've accomplished that transition yet. Quite honestly. <laughs> Um, it, it was much easier to give up the lawyer role and kind of forget that because we got an outstanding general counsel uh, and associate general counsel, assistant general counsel here. So, um, so I don't have to worry about that stuff any anymore. But but learning how to pick up the leadership role, like I said, I'm, I'm still a work in progress um, there, and it's uh, I think that's lifelong learning to get to get there. What were the lessons you learned from Bruce Wolpert? Because he probably taught you a bunch of leadership lessons and, and how to lead what what were some of the lessons you learned from him oh um gosh just just so many he yeah. really believed in in the power of uh people and that really stuck with me the the faith and trust he put in people at all levels of the company so he had more time for somebody who's driving a mixer truck than he did for folks on his management team and he spent more time talking to those folks. So in his mind, there wasn't really any differentiation between his his top vice presidents and the, the person he just hired to sweep the floors out at the Wilson Quarry Warehouse. Mm. And he treated all of those folks um, with equal dignity and respect. And I, I always loved that about him. And that was, that was really an important lesson uh, for me. But then there were some things that I quickly realized that he was sort of so capable and so smart and so talented that I just couldn't do. So I, I quickly realized in this job that I couldn't do things the way he did them because I just didn't have the same skill set that he did. So yeah. there were a lot of things that I would like to do that he did. And it's like, I just can't do it that way. Um, so, so I guess the other thing that he taught me, not maybe not maybe expressly, but by example, is, is that you've got to lead consistent it's got to be genuine and it's mm. got to be authentic to you. You can't lead like somebody else would or like you think somebody else would because that's not genuine. You're not that person. So, yeah. um, so he taught me, um, or I learned through, you know, in, through this process that you got to do this your own way. You can never, you know, pretend to be somebody else. That's fascinating. And I mean, you're, I've, I've met you a few times. We haven't spent too much time together, but you wouldn't, I don't think anyone would, if, if they lined everyone up at the office, you'd be hard to pick out as a CEO, president CEO. You're a very humble guy. And in your office, you know, you're in the middle of everyone else's office. You don't even have your own office. It's, you know, everyone's in the middle in one, one large room, largely in the Granite Rock office. I mean, you, 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 you kind of fly under the radar there. That's something that, that Bruce started. And um, so I've got a cubicle that's one over from where his was. Huh. And I, I really like the symbolism of that, right? That goes back to sort of his, his view that the, the guy sweeping the floor should be treated the same as, as the CEO. And, and, and that's a granite rock cultural thing. And uh, I, I really wanted to, to keep that. So thank you, because that, that's, that's what we're trying to do. I tell people all the time that, um, the, you know, the very best ideas to, to make Granite Rock better, they don't come from me and they don't really come from our leadership team, right? It's the folks out there doing the work, mm-hmm. you know, where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, who have the best ideas and the best notions for improvement and the best thoughts on how to do things. So we really try to build an organization and maintain the, the organization that that encourages those folks having an active say in it. And that 
kind of precludes being a, being an egomaniac CEO and thinking that your idea is always the way things should go. <laughs> no, with, with such a large company, I mean, a thousand people, how do you make sure everyone has a voice from, you know, the guy sleeping, sweeping the floor to the truck drivers to everybody in the organization? It's really a big challenge. And what I've learned is that it's all about the culture and we've put a lot of work into defining what our culture is because I think it gives us a competitive advantage in the talent wars. This is, you know, widely regarded to be a great place to work. We're not a perfect place to work, but widely regarded as being a great place to work. So, so building that culture and, and part of that culture is this, this idea that we call uh, working together. We're very intentional about that. Mm. And working together was brought to us by Mark Kaminsky, who I mentioned, and a gentleman who's a consultant for us out of the aluminum industry named Mike Baker. And that, that's a, a way of working with teams to make sure that everybody does have that voice, that when you go to tackle a task or a problem, that you solicit, actively solicit feedback from everybody on the team, gather up the best ideas, make a decision, go forward, and there's several other steps to it as well. But we were very intentional about rolling that out to folks through training and through follow-up training to, to really make sure that we, that we did that. And I think that the behaviors that we model as leaders draw that out, right? You got to, mm-hmm. you got to walk the talk. You got to do that. Yeah. Um, but really more importantly, I think it's the behaviors that the immediate supervisors model for those folks, right? Mm-hmm. It, I'm not a military guy, but there's, there's a saying that I really like, which is, you know, the sergeants run the army. Yeah. And I, and I, I think it's really true in our business. So, so I could be, you know, the most um, open-minded and outreaching person there is. But if the, if the folks running the crews on the ground are kind of my way or the highway, you know, I, I, I'm not paying you to ask why and all of that stuff that you hear in our business, yep. you know, it'll never work, right. It'll, it'll never work. So, so the challenge is how you get this working together approach to things down through the organization. And it's building systems that do that, that, that reward that and disincentivize, you know, the opposite. It's building symbols into the organization that show that you value that. And it's the behavior of the leaders. And, and some of the systems we put in are really training and reminding folks how important this is. I've also learned it is never done. Yeah. <laughs> never done with this. You what, just got to keep on it. What do you mean by building symbols? What what, is, what do symbols mean? This comes from this working together kind of curriculum and that sort of everything in an organization or nearly everything is a symbol, right? It's a mm-hmm. symbol of the values of the organization. So, so behavior, a leader's behavior can be a symbol. So a simple one is if I go to a job site and, you know, I'm not wearing my safety glasses, well, that's a symbol that I don't give a darn about safety. Yeah. So we tie and pay really close attention to that. And that's a simple one, but there's other ones, you know, do you, do you put your core values out where everybody can see them and do you talk about them a lot or are they sit in a book somewhere and nobody, nobody talks about them. Nobody mentions them. Nobody you know, cross references to them when you're trying to make points. Mm-hmm. Those things are all all symbolic, and and um, you know they tell people whether you're serious about things or not. And and so we we try to be mindful of that, and we try to encourage our leaders through training and otherwise to be good symbols of the things we believe in for their people. Gotcha. Now, where do you spend most of your time? I mean, weekly, what, what do you spend all your energy and time on these days? 
Well, these days in the time of coronavirus, it's on things I never thought I, I would, yeah. such as learning learning all this medical stuff so we can try to predict what the future is going to bring. Yep. But before that, I think I spend most of my time on people stuff, mm. on trying to make sure that our people systems, and by that I don't just mean HR, but kind of everything we do that touches people are being consistent with core values and that we're really walking the talk for our people. I try to get out and, and visit uh, job sites and plants as much as I can. I don't do it as much as I should uh, just because it's really easy to get shackled to your desk. But, but that's a big important part um, because that you know shows people that you really care about what they're doing out there and you appreciate it. And then the, you know, the routine things that you have to do, you know, we're in capital planning meetings and profit planning meetings and review meetings and, and, you know, salary meetings for the first three or four years after Bruce passed away, I spent a whole lot of time on the systems of the company Hmm. because we learned kind of going down a rabbit hole here to your question, but but we learned when, when, um, when Bruce passed away that he had designed the company because he was so capable and because he was so 150% engaged in the company, he really designed the systems in the company to all filter through him. So we learned very quickly that, that, that no mere mortal could really do that. So we had to design some systems that would work um, spreading out responsibility and accountability and authority way further throughout the company. So the first three or four years, I think, that I was in this job, that was a whole lot of time spent kind of redesigning just what we did day to day and how we did things so that we could break up his responsibilities and and, and get them down to folks who could really manage them and had the authority and the accountability to, to do that. So that that was a big piece now and that we're then, and now it's um, kind of minding that, improving it where it needs improving, and then all the day-to-day chores that you just, you know, are part of the job. Now, was he, uh, I know Granite Rock's family owned. I don't know what family owns Granite Rock. So it's the, it's the Wolpert family. The company was founded in 1900 by Arthur Wilson. And then Bruce Wolpert was the third generation. His mom was a Wilson. His children, yeah, he has two children and his wife are the current owners of the, of the company. Okay. Um, so it's 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 been in the same family for 120 years, still is, and we're we're fortunate that they really have an affinity for Granite Rock, and um, they want to keep it in that family, which gives us a tremendous amount of freedom to to run the business really consistent with the values and not worry about you know checking our stock price in the Wall Street Journal yeah. uh, every morning. Now, what's I mean, what's it like to? lead such a historic company with over a century of history behind it. What's, what's that like? Well, I mean, you know, it's a privilege, right? Because it's, yeah. it's not just a company. It's really a community institution. It's a, it's 120 years in Watsonville as a headquarters, 120 years in the, in the Bay area. So it's a privilege. Um, it, it's a little overwhelming at times because you realize that it's not just, you know, something that you want to fold the tent up on one day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's liberating in the sense that if you think, well, we've been here 120 years, we ought to be here at least another 120 years so we can really take the long view. It frees you from having to do things on a day-to-day basis that that says, well, we need to make the most money we can make today. We're, we have yeah. this freedom to say, now we want to be in business for another 120 years. So 
the decisions we make today are made with that view in mind, as opposed to we just we got ten years to go or the you know or whatever. That long view is a much it's a lot more fun to run an organization when you can take that long view as opposed to when you're just sort of constrained by, you know, I just need to make a lot of money so I can sell it or I need to get through this or that. So that part is really, it's gratifying and and really kind of liberating because you could, you could look far down the road and make, I think, smarter, longer term decisions. Yeah. And you guys aren't, you know, really just a construction company either. I mean, there's probably very few parts of your community that you haven't touched over the hundred plus years from schools to highways to everything. It seems like our history is that we started in the materials business. So granite rock materials from the Wilson quarry went to, you know, virtually everything from railroad ballast to foundations, to roads, et cetera, you know, starting in 1900. And then the company got into the construction business early 1900s. And built some some pretty historic stuff, including some buildings that are still around today. And then kind of got out of it. There's a granite construction company much bigger than us, publicly held nationwide now. But we were kind of uh, brother and sister back in the early 1900s. When and then when there was a there was a friendly split there, and then they went more into the construction business, and we stayed more in the materials business. But since the 1980s, we've come back into the construction business. So in the Bay Area, we've done highways and airports and roads and driveways and house foundations and really anything you can think of. It's really an iconic brand. I told our, we had our managers meeting before before the shelter-in-place order said you couldn't have meetings anymore. We had our managers meeting in early February. And one of the things I told our our team there was, Think about how important the work we do is. We're in Silicon Valley, and you know Silicon Valley, of course, is celebrated worldwide for the tech innovations that came out of there. But, but you know, the garage that Hewlett and Packard invented the computer in, you know, probably had granite rock concrete in the foundation, and the road <laughs> they drove on was, yeah. you know, was Wilson Quarry aggregate, no yeah. doubt. So, uh. so you know, we had to, we had to build the Silicon Valley, not alone, of course, right? There's a lot of great contractors out there, but but we played a significant part in that. And, you know, I reminded folks, you know, we had to build that stuff so that they can do the work that they're famous for. You know, if it weren't for you know, the Wilson Quarry and the work of, of all those generations of granite rock people to, you know, mine the materials and turn it into concrete and asphalt and then put it down on the roads and driveways and into the buildings, and that stuff wouldn't be there. Mm. Uh, so that's a really a pretty cool legacy. Our, our folks are proud of that. Now, Granite Rock is overwhelmingly, for how big and, and serious you guys are and, and how capable and the extent of the operations, it's it's a amazingly impressive business. And I've seen a lot of it. I mean, I've been to a lot of plants. I've seen from the cold in place recycling to the quarry to you know road construction and, and schools and, and all that. I've seen a lot of the business. And there's just an, an overwhelming sense of humility at the company just across the board. How do you maintain that sense of humility when when you have such a enormous reputation and history and and are really really good at what you do? That's a great question. I mean, that's kind of the that's kind of the secret sauce, and I say it's secret not because I don't want to tell you because I'm not sure I really know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but you know, I think a couple of things. One is 
um, you know, it's, it all is comes down to the people, right? And mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in a we all say, oh, it's about the people, but here it's really, really true, and it comes down to hiring the right people, and we've got a good we've got a good system for that, and we look, we have a, a system where we look for talent, we look for experience. Experience is not as important to us because people can always learn that, mm-hmm. but most of all, we look for chemistry. And I've come to think in, in my own head that we're not looking for chemistry as much as we're looking for character, mm. right? We're, we're really looking for that person who wants to be here and has that humility and just wants to do a good job and doesn't, you know, isn't a self-aggrandizing sort of person. And so it's hiring those people first. It is trying to show them the direction you want to go, which is that that stuff is important. How you treat your customers is important. How you treat your fellow team members is important. Mm-hmm. You know, how you treat each other is really important and that's our expectation. So lay out that vision, show them the direction and then turn them loose and let them do their work because they're great and they're expert mm. and they can do what, what I can't do. You know, I tell folks all the time, you know, if you needed me to drive a mixer truck, we'd be in a world of hurt. If you needed <laughs> me to pave a road, we'd be in a world of hurt, but you guys can all do it. And defining, trying to define that culture and talk expressly about it. For years and years, we had said, well, that's just kind of the way Granite Rock does things, kind mm-hmm. of the way Granite Rock does things. And and, and we got some, some advice from a, a trainer that we hired named Karen Seeker. And, and she said, look, don't just say, well, you know, you know what our culture is, you know, define it. And we spent uh, several years ago, did a lot of work to say, okay, what does it mean? You know, what is the Granite Rock way? What exactly does that mean? And we identified some key attributes of that. Now we train on them. So instead of just saying, well, you know, Granite Rock's culture, we talk about safety, of course, number one, but we talk about a culture of caring, where it's really important to care for people. You hear the word love used here, I think, more than most other construction companies. Mm-hmm. You know, our we call it our culture wheel, which which lays out these attributes of our culture. You know, there's a big heart on there because that's the idea. It's okay to care for your people. It's okay to ask for help. You know, we expect you to have each other's backs. We expect managers to walk the talk. We expect you to say yes to our customers and take care of them. Mm. So we put a lot of effort into defining what we think that culture is. Some of it's aspirational. Again, you know, we're not all the way there. Um, But defining what it is, what we want it to be, and then really being intentional about teaching on that, discussing that, following that, talking about that. Why is training it important? Because it's not really viewed as important across the board, I think, in construction. Why invest time in training about culture when that person could be paving roads and and being productive? Why make that investment? If culture is really important to you, and to us it really is, it is really kind of the most important thing. Mm -hmm. We expect people to be skilled blade hands and skilled asphalt rakers too, right? But the culture is the number one thing here. When the board asked me to do this, I was told, that's your job. You take care of the culture because it's very strong here and that's what we want you to do. So I wasn't told, go make a bunch of money. I wasn't told, grow the business. I was told, you take care of the culture. And I took that to heart. And I think that's really critically important because it is an advantage for us and it is really important to our people. I hear all the time from people who say, I'm here because of the way I'm treated. I'm here because of what it feels like to work for Granite Rock. Mm. And that's pretty powerful. So yeah. if you if you start from the assumption that we do, 
that that is critically important. It's the most important thing. Then how do you maintain it? And one of the ways you maintain it is by teaching it, by taking the time to train on it, because it, you know, back to symbols, it sends that symbol. This is important. You know, it's, it's June and I pulled you off of a paving job to bring you into the corporate office for two days to, to on a weekend to, to do a working together class where we talk about culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it tells folks how important it is and it gives them the tools they need to be good at it. So I think it's, it's great. We're, we are not as good as we should be on a lot of the technical training, you know, the job skills training, you know, how to be better at filling out your time cards training and that kind of stuff. We're getting better at it. We're, mm-hmm. we're making a push at it. But we started with the, what we call leadership development training. And that is because it's, if culture is the number one thing, then training culture has got to be the number one thing for your people. Mm. You know, there's a lot in this industry, there's a lot of folks who work here for a while, there for a while, back here, over there. You know, that, that just happens. It's the yeah. nature of the construction industry. And what we found is people bring their own culture that they learned on the job with them. So if you hire a supervisor, project supervisor, and he or she comes on board and, you know, brings the culture of company X, which might be a tops down, you know, kick ass, take names, do as mm-hmm. I say, not as I do kind of culture. Yeah. Then we're not walking the top. Right. So so we we learned, that, you know, again, back to the sergeants from the army, we better be training those sergeants on the expectations of what we want from Granite Rock, because if you don't do that, their people are going to say, well, I may as well go to work for brand X because this guy on my job site, it's the brand X culture, which I don't really appreciate. Mm-hmm. So training's the answer to that. Before we got on the phone, you, you said you wanted to really hit on succession, how important it is planning succession. We, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but can you talk to succession? And, and you said Granite Rock, it, they did you know poor job planning succession, but, but great in execution. It's worked out great. But what lessons have you learned about succession planning at your time there? I make that an important part of my role for the next succession because if a company is going to have longevity, it's going to go through successions. And I think sometimes, particularly in family-held businesses, the sort of unstated assumption is is that the um, the folks in control of the family-owned business are just going to live forever, yep. or things are just going to work out, or you know, at some point, my son or daughter is going to all of a sudden fall in love with the business and work it out, or they'll marry somebody who's going to, you know, it'll all work out. And so I think in our business, from what I see from our customers and from my own experience here, we place a very low priority on that. Hmm. Years and years ago, we held our our 100th anniversary party. and, And part of that is we wanted to give folks in industry, you know, largely our customer base, a bunch of classes as part of it. So we invited them to San Francisco and they had a day to take, um, you know, there were 20 or 30 different course offerings. And one of the things we offered was succession planning and we asked FMI to come in and train it. And literally nobody showed up for that class, which just shocked me. But it told me that our customers are not thinking about that, right? They're not thinking about that because it's hard. It's the same reason that people, you know, put off doing their wills and estate plans, right? Because I don't want to think about that stuff. Yeah. And I think as an industry, you know, particularly as an industry so dominated by family held businesses that we could be better about that. And we need to, we need to address those hard topics. We didn't do it here. You know, Bruce Wolpert assumed, I think that he was going to live forever and we all did too. And that was his, you know, so as 
we didn't worry about his succession succession plan because we'd all be retired when he was still working. Mm-hmm. He was fortunate, as I said earlier, to repeat myself, that, that he had a board that was able to sort that out. But if he didn't do that, if it was just sort of a typical family business, so you leave a, a grieving widow and children to sort out what's going to happen to the thousand people in the business, that just is unrealistic. It's just not going to work. Yeah. So, you know, learning that lesson, we spend a lot of time thinking about succession planning here and identifying the next folks and making sure they're getting the training and thinking about transition, you know, a year or two or more in advance so that it's not just one day, okay, John, you're the guy. And I, I just think it's, I think it's valuable. I, I just think it's valuable and I wish more of our customers would do it, but I see how hard it is. Is there a point in time where you can plan too early? Is, is there, I mean, can you do it too early or is it really just, you can do it too late? I don't think you can plan too early. You can probably pull the trigger too early. And Mm. I think that there is, you know, I think there is this balance between saying, you know, when you're talking about top positions in the company, so, you know, the, the vice president operations, CEO roles, executive vice president of this division or that, I think you can nominate, you know, princes or princesses for those roles too early because people might not be up for it. That might drive other people away who think they're in, you know, ought to have that job, ought to be in consideration for it. Mm-hmm. So I think you need to be careful there. But in terms of figuring out, you know, I, you know, there's three people in the company who might be able to do this particular role. Are they flight risks? Are they staying around? If they're flight risks, why? What do I need to do to keep them here if they're key for the succession plan? And then what gaps need to be filled in their skill set? You know, what what other job could they do to be more rounded to do this, or what? training could they do? I don't think you could ever do that piece too early. I do worry about, and I see some companies do it, you know, and and particularly family businesses, right? I mean, little Joey's 15, but he's going to be the next CEO of the company. Yeah, yeah. You know, all, all the folks who are good, talented, professional guys are, are saying, well, hell with that. I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah. So I do think on the pulling the trigger or, or making the announcements, too early is, is a problem. I, I Somebody told me, and I was just great sage advice, you shouldn't pick people too early, but there's nothing wrong with placing some bets. And that's the way we look at it, is let's p- place those bets and get those folks the tools they need so that if they are indeed the person, you know, they can step into it and be as effective as possible on day one. Mm. I really wanted to touch on your background and in, in the company before we dove into it, but the, the world is cloaked in, in a little bit of a darkness right now because of COVID. How are you keeping everyone calm and, and collected and focused during a time of such uncertainty? Well, I don't, I don't know that we are, but we're sure trying. Yeah. Um, I've come to the conclusion that since this thing is wholly outside of our control and the path of this and how it's going to all work out is far outside of anybody's expertise and certainly far outside of mine or, or our management teams here, that the only thing you can do is focus on communicating. And we have really tried to communicate as honestly, truthfully as possible. And that means telling folks what we know, being honest and tell people what we don't know, and communicate, you know, double, triple, quadruple the amount of communication that we do. And I think that if you provide people with facts and not conjecture or opinion, and you tell them, we know this, but we don't know that, 
and next week we learn this, but we still don't know that, mm-hmm. that helps calm them down because if you give them the facts, people are, they're adults, right? And they're good, strong people. And they can look at that and say, okay, I get it now. And it's a little bit less scary. So, so what we've tried to do is really emphasize our communication. And we've tried a multimedia approach, which you should appreciate. We do it through our Rock Talk publication, through our what we call My Rock Talk, which is a kind of a texting app where we can give folks in the network updates. I wrote a letter to home in the first couple of weeks to all our people saying, this is what we think about this thing. And talk about, we've even done a little bit of video stuff so that we can talk to people because it's really hard. You know, you'd love personally to be able to talk to a thousand people. One of the things that's really, really difficult about this current emergency is you can't bring people together and talk to them at a time when you ought to be able to bring people together and talk to them. Yeah. So we've, we've tried to overcome that by video and, and, you know, bombarding them with probably more information than, than they want. And a little bit going out to the job sites and whatever, but it just it just so, you know, where everybody here is wearing a mask um, in public. Your safety meetings are people standing around in a great big circle to make sure that we have sufficient social distance. So all of those things make it difficult to communicate. That's a long answer to saying. I think about the best we can do is communicate often and as openly and transparently as we can. There's a lot of talk about essential versus non-essential. Why kind of an obvious answer, but why is construction and infrastructure so essential? Why is granite rock, you know, an essential part of the U.S. economy and society? Well, I, I think, you know, 90% of what we do is build the things or supply the products that, that people need to keep groceries coming to the grocery store and keep people able to drive to the doctor's offices and the hospitals and, you mm-hmm. know, keep the sewer lines open and new sewer capacity built and bridges and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all, all of that stuff. And, you know, if you thought this was going to be a week-long problem, I can see the argument, you know, shut down all construction for a week or two weeks and we'll be okay, right? Other than, you know, an emergency pothole repair or bridge crack or something. Yep. But it's, as we know, it's not going to be a week or two-week problem. It's going to be a month or months-long problem. You know, in that period of time, a lot of infrastructure work needs to get done. In California, we have a housing crisis, and most of our housing is shut down now. You know, our number one problem two months ago was there weren't enough houses for the number of folks around, and so housing became unaffordable. And then when you shut all that down, you sure you're not building the inventory of houses to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. If it's down for two or three months, we'll get back up and do it. But if it's down for longer than that, it just exacerbates that problem. Where are people going to live, right? Where are people going to live? So I do think it's critical, and I really think our industry has done an outstanding job. The heavy civil industry has done an outstanding job in keeping people separate. I was on a job site Friday morning. The safety meeting was just as it should be. Everybody PPE'd up, standing out in a big circle, you know, all kinds of hand-washing supplies on the tailgate of the pickup. And then, you know, we had two folks on the ground and everybody else in a piece of equipment. So there's no better way to social distance than being in the cab of your grader, right? By yep. yourself. Yeah. You know, they, they said that the, it's a little hard to break people from wanting to have lunch together, you know, and because that's a thousand year tradition in the construction industry, but they're doing that too. So so I think we're able to work safely by and large where we can't, we're not. You know, if something requires two folks working side by side, the directions the people are just don't do it. Mm-hmm. But I do think it really keeps the economy moving 
and and it keeps you know folks physically moving from point A to point B. And and um, I'm I'm hopeful that as they kind of ratchet these restrictions off, construction will be among the first industries to open back up, so we can start you know working on that inventory of housing and and the other things we need to do to get back to normal. Good. On the larger scale, you know, beyond COVID, what what are the challenges you think construction faces now and into the future? People is the number one challenge, which is why I so greatly appreciate what you do. You know, we've had, as you know, we've got this tremendous marketing problem in our business and that people think of this as some low-grade alternative to going to school or doing something else. So, you know, well, I couldn't do this, so I got a job in construction. Yeah. It's really not that way. It's a fantastic industry, but we just don't do a very good job in promoting that. So the number one challenge, you know, a month ago was people. And I think as this thing comes back and it will, the number one challenge is still going to be people, you know, Mm -hmm. getting young folks into it. You probably have this demographic in mind or the statistic in mind better than I do, but I think the average age of a construction superintendent is 60 or late Mm fifties. And and that, you know, that's just not right, right? We're going to lose all those highly skilled, talented, smart, problem-solving people and who is going to replace them. I don't believe that, you know, robotics are the solution to that. I think we'll always need those highly skilled, talented, smart, problem-solving people. So so to me, that is number one, um, that, that, you know, people are, are just number one. The second is how to how to deal with technology, how to become more efficient, and to stay up with that technology, but still integrate it into what we do in a safe manner. I see all the really cool stuff that we've designed or the manufacturers have designed regarding, you know, dozers that work on their own. And I worry about the safety elements of that because I know that, you know, human being operators can make mistakes, but I'm not sure the technology is foolproof either. So, so I hope that in our rush to do things, we're, we're, on the cutting edge technology, we're not doing things that put people in harm's way. So, so I think integrating technology in an effective way that makes us all more productive, uh, but still keeps everybody safe is up there. And in light of coronavirus, I think it'll be how to integrate, because I suspect until we get a cure or a vaccine, which who knows if we ever do, I, you know, I'm optimistic when I listen to the experts, they say we will, but, you know, if we're still Dealing with this six months or a year from now, how do you continue to keep people healthy when they need to work, you know, work in the same vicinity as each other? And and if vertical building starts back up and you got 10 folks going up a man lift back and forth every day, how do you keep them all healthy? You know, what are we going to, how are we going to do that and change, you know, fundamentally change the way we work so that our folks aren't getting sick? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the question everyone's asking right now. But the, like you said, I think the heavy construction industry in particular has done a very, very, very good job. I've seen a lot of amazing photos, videos, um, you know, newsletters from executives. And, and it's amazing how everyone's changed the way they do business almost overnight to keep their people working, keep, keep society moving while we, while we try to figure all this out. I think so too. And, but we need to, because, you know, if we, don't show the world that we know how to do this, then, you know, we'll get shut down. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Did you want to touch on anything else before we wrap up? No, I think you were pretty comprehensive. We covered a lot of ground here. There's, there's a lot in there. Again, I I just really appreciate you taking some time with us. I've, I've, Granite Rock was one of the first companies we started working with. 
very first, I mean, among the, the first two or three, and it's just been a, an awesome time getting to know the, the whole company over the past few years. It's been an absolute pleasure. So, so I'm just very happy to have you on and talk with you today. Well, thank you. Keep doing what you're doing because you are doing the industry a big solid by, by promoting the, all the wonderful aspects of this and countering a lot of the myths that are out there. And we greatly appreciate it. All right. Well, we're doing our best. We'll keep at it. I guess I do. I, a lot of that is thanks to uh, photos from, from your quarry there. It's easy to make a D11 look pretty cool. <laughs> Some of your night shots, we're going to hang them around our office here. Those night shots of the big 992s loading our primary crusher are just awesome. Oh, yeah. So we've got them. I, I don't, you haven't been here for a while because of travel restrictions, but we are uh, redecorating with some of those. So thank you for that. Cool. That's cool to hear. All right, Tom. Well, again, I appreciate it. Uh, keep hanging in there with everything going on, and I'm sure we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you, Aaron.